Okay, let's, uh, let's just bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Well, Father God, we just thank you that you are a great and mighty God. We thank you that, Lord, you are in complete control, Lord, of all of history. Uh, Father, we thank you that from the foundation of this world, Lord, to the time this world, uh, Lord, is destroyed. Uh, Father, you've had a complete plan and a purpose, and Lord, beyond this world, Lord, there's a wonderful eternity waiting for us. Lord, as we begin this study now looking at the life of Abraham, Father, we just pray, uh, Lord, that you would open our eyes, help us to see, Lord, just some of the parallels, Lord, with our own lives. Lord, the reality that Abraham wasn't looking for a dwelling here on earth, but Lord, he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so, Lord, stir our hearts as we go through, Lord, this morning and onwards, Lord, from, from this week, Lord, if you tarry. We just ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been going through looking right from the beginning of the book of Genesis. Uh, the creation, of course, the first couple of chapters. The world has its own views and opinions on that, but uh, it's very clear that God's book says that everything will reproduce after its kind. Man's book... Darwin's book says things reproduce other than their kind. And then we go out in the world, what do we find? God's book wins every time. The Bible is true. Um, the word, of, it says of itself, thy word is true from the beginning. And it really is, and we can trust it. We've seen the fall of man. The predicament we're all in now because of man's desire to go his own way. And uh, we live in the consequences of that right now. And of course then we see this battle beginning between the seed of the woman or the promised seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Of course, Satan wanting to destroy everything that God was doing and particularly to try and in some way stop, if possible, this promised seed from coming. And it begins with Cain killing Abel. I've got no doubt that Cain and Satan thought that Abel was going to be that seed. And that's why he had to go. Of course, Satan then discovers that he's got the whole thing wrong and that God has a much bigger plan and he goes on and we get to the time of the flood. And the reason that God brings the, the flood is to wipe out a satanic attempt to stop the seed coming. We then went on and we've been looking in the last couple of weeks at the table of nations and the Tower of Babel and how the devil was effectively trying to lay down a smokescreen, bringing in false religion, idolatry and false worship, worship of the planets and these things we were looking at last week. And of course, all of those things to try and keep people from the true seed. But then we get to chapter 12 onwards and we begin looking at this family, the family that we know today as Israel. It's the family of Abraham and his descendants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And these four characters now will make up the, the rest of the book, which is why often commentators divide the book into these two halves. Both so important for us. But before we go on, before we start to jump into chapter 12, there's something else. Because there's, in between all of this, I believe, a divine challenge. And we don't find it recorded in the book of Genesis. It's recorded in the book of Job. And I just want to share this with you because I think it's important to understand the timing of all these things. There's nothing random or haphazard in God's timing. All of these things are done at the time they are done because of God's plan and because of God's purposes. Now, when we go to the book of Job, we read the first verse of first chapter in Job, but there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, we're told. And one that feared God and eschewed evil. What a great thing to have recorded in God's word of you. Now, what is the reason for Satan's hatred here? Well, I think it's quite simple. You see, he's already encountered one individual that we're told was effectively just and perfect. Perfect in his generations, genetically pure. Someone who was right with God. That being Noah. And look at the problems that caused Satan's plan. And now somebody else that the, the, the word of God is telling us have been identified, certainly in the heavenly realms, as somebody who was of upstanding with God, somebody who sought God with his whole heart, feared God, eschewed evil. And no doubt that Satan had a particular hatred because of this individual and maybe wondering what problems that Job might cause him. Remember that Satan doesn't know everything. He's not like God. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. He's learning as he goes of what God's plan is and, and so on. Now, unwittingly, what we see in the book of Job is Satan masterminding his own failure. This is incredible because we go on and we jump to verse 6. It says, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. 
Now, Revelation 12, verse 10 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's what Satan does. Just accuses us. Tries to lay blame. Of course, we know that our sins have been washed away. Jesus on the cross cried out that wonderful Greek word, tetelestai. It means paid in full. It's translated often as it is finished. But it is finished. It's paid in full. All our sin is done and dusted. Satan's got nothing that he can lay to our charge. The other interesting thing is this phrase here, the sons of God. And just a quick mention, we have talked about this before, but in Hebrew it's this benai ha-elohim, it's this direct creation of God. And we see it a number of times. It's used of the angels in Genesis 6, also at the end of Job as well as here. It's used of Adam in Luke 3, 38. And it's used of all believers in 1 John, and also in 1 John chapter 3. It speaks there of this new life that we have in God, that we have been given the power to become sons of God. Well, we read on. So Satan and the sons of God, those the angelic realm, are presenting themselves to God. And Satan said, when, sorry, the Lord said unto Satan, whence comest thou? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. It's just an important point here that Satan is, as we've already been talking and praying this week, Satan is the God of this world for now. And it's his power that we're seeking to, to break. You see, Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But you see, God has allowed, for now, Satan dominion over the earth. It was given to Adam. But Satan deceived Adam and, and usurped Adam's position and took that title of the earth. And there's a number of scriptures that we can look at that tell us this. <clears throat> Again, Adam, we're told in Psalm 8 verse 5, effectively there, we're told that Adam forfeited his right to the earth. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and various other scriptures tell us that Satan is now the God of this world. When Jesus in Luke 4 is tempted in the wilderness, Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't turn around and say, well, you can't do that, they're not yours. Jesus acknowledges that for now that is Satan's prerogative. But Jesus doesn't take the shortcut. Jesus knows that they will eventually be his, that Jesus will be the one who will rule over the whole earth, but it will be done in God's way, in God's timing. Verse 8, And the Lord said unto Satan, I consider my servant Job, there is none like him in the earth, perfect and upright. Again, a man that fears God, eschews evil. And we go on and then, uh, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Job is kind of challenging here. Has thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. See, Satan is saying, well, it's not fair. Of course he loves you. Look what you've given him. See, really, it's Job only fears you because you protect him. And that's the challenge that Satan brings. And by the way here, just as we're told in James 1.17, Satan actually confirms that blessings do really truly come from the Lord. Every good gift comes from God. But then Satan puts this challenge forth. and says, but put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan's kind of making a gamble here. And the Lord said unto Satan... Okay, effectively. Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. You see, again, Job only serves God for the benefits. That's the challenge that Satan is laying forward. You know, this is a challenge to the age-old issue of free will. Do we serve God because we choose to serve God? Or do we serve God because we have no other option but to serve God because God has predestined and that's the case? You see, free will has to be required if there is to be true love. You see, if we don't have a choice in the matter, if God has predestined that we have no other option, well, then it's not love. It has to be of our own volition that we want to seek and serve and worship him. And Satan knows that all too well. Now, when we come to chapter 2... Satan having failed miserably in round one, because remember what Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job's response after he loses everything. He doesn't curse God, he just carries on worshipping God. Job lose, sorry, Satan loses spectacularly round one. So round two, Satan comes again and says, well, yeah, but okay, but if I can touch his life, then he'll curse you. Verse six says, and the Lord said unto Satan, behold, he is in thy hand, but save his life. In other words, okay, you can touch him physically. You can affect his life. But you're not allowed to kill him. That's the condition. 
Now, if Satan loses the argument this time, he loses the argument for all time. You see, if a man or woman can love God simply because God is God, then Satan's claim that a man only loves God because of the blessings and protection is shown to be false. And that is the challenge that we have here. And it's a challenge to God's plan of redemption. And it has to be settled in the the courtrooms of heaven, as it were, once and for all. Now, I think this is kind of like a missing piece of the jigsaw that so often we read through Scripture, we don't quite understand why we have the book of Job. A lot of people talk about the book of Job as giving us an answer to the problem of suffering. I don't think it's intended to do that. The book of Job is showing us this incredibly important challenge that is placed before God. People kind of miss the importance of chapter 1 and 2 and then focus upon all the rest of the the book. And there's some good things, some great things that come out of the uh, study of Job. I remember when we came down here, Joe and I, the first book we talked through, the first book I talked through as pastor, uh, was the book of Job. And uh, I remember speaking at a pastor's conference and they said to me, or or talking to a friend at another pastor at a pastor's conference uh, that year, and they said, how are you you getting on? And I said, "It's, it's okay. I said, it's tough, it's hard. There's lots of challenges. And they said, what are you teaching through? I said, the book of Job. And they went, whew. They said, you know, God will make you live through the book you're teaching. I said, really? They said, yeah. They said, that's why I started with Song of Songs. I'll let you think that one through. <laughs> okay, God's plan of redemption depends on man being a free moral agent, capable of accepting or rejecting. You know, and if we're coerced into accepting salvation which is in a sense what Satan is suggesting here, it wouldn't be a free choice. You see, God, and God would not be justly able to claim the restoration of the Edenic relationship, that relationship that was established in Eden that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation, that God restores, that God's walk with man will be restored. You see, if, if this can't be settled, then God can't claim that. You see, and it had to be settled also before the cross. Because from that point, faith has given way to sight. Because the blessing of salvation through the blood of Christ eclipses all other benefits that we derive from God's hand. You know, whatever benefits we have in this life, salvation is infinitely greater than any of those things. Now, of course, there are people still that do not believe even though Jesus has risen from the dead. But the reality is, for those that do believe... We've got the the cross. We know that Jesus has died for our sin. Why wouldn't we want to put our trust in Jesus? You see, Job also had that faith in a coming redeemer. In Job 19, 25 and various other portions of the book of Job, we see that. But for Job, it was still something yet future. It hadn't happened yet. It was very much a faith thing looking forward to what was to come. So really, the book of Job summarizes direct attack by Satan on the plan of redemption. If man can be shown to only love God for the blessings, then redemption is a farce. And by the way, redemption is to restore and to purchase back. See, again, if Satan can win this one, he wins the day and remains God of this world. But if God wins, well, the justification for his master plan, the the plan of salvation, is established. And again, the basis of redemption is love. We read that in scripture. We love him because he first loved us. It's not because of all the blessings. It's not because, it's because of that relationship. That's why Christianity in its true sense is not a religion. It can't be a religion. It's purely a relationship. So again, the book of Job is pivotal to the plan of redemption. So why did God allow Satan to attack Job? Well, to settle this question effectively in a court of law. And to remove any claim that Satan would try to make as to the legitimacy of God's plan. And for that reason, I'm absolutely certain that this exercise will never need to be repeated. Some people wonder whether God would allow them to go through the kind of experience Job did. No. Because this was a once-only event. Who wins? God. Spectacularly. See, God is justified. Job is vindicated. Satan is defeated. Wayne Jackson, in his commentary, says this. He said, The book defends the absolute glory and perfection of God. It sets forth the theme echoed in Psalm 18.3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. God is deserving of our praise simply on the basis of who he is. Apart from the blessings he bestows. Satan denied this, but Job 
proved him wrong. Go, Job. Looking forward to getting to heaven and meeting him, aren't you? Just imagine the conversations we can have with these people that have gone on before us, people we read of in Scripture. Okay, so then the question, Job showed that he loved God, not because of the blessings, but because God was God, because who God is, because God's character, because as we read in Psalm 119, 68, God is good and does good. We can love God because of everything he is. And you know, even to this day, there are people around the world that don't have blessings like we even experience and enjoy. Yet they love God with their whole hearts. People that are persecuted, people that are martyred for their faith. So the question is, what happens when this divine challenge is finally settled at the end of the day? Well, God is then free to begin to unveil his plan of redemption. Satan can no longer argue that man only loves God because of the blessings. That's been proven categorically wrong. So now God can bring his plan of redemption. And again, it's that plan that was settled in heaven before the foundation of the world. So at this point, enter Abraham. Because now God begins this plan of redemption that was spoken of back in Genesis. But now God is going to choose this man and his family through whom he's going to work his plan for all mankind. So we jump back into Genesis chapter 12 and the first three verses to start with. We read, now the Lord had said unto Abraham, or Abraham, forgive me if I say Abraham, we know him as Abraham. Of course, his name starts off as Abraham, later God will change it. So forgive me if I am not uh, correct when I say this for now, but you'll bear with me. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and I will make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now what a statement this is. Abraham suddenly has God come and visit him. And Abraham, bring you back up. I want you to leave your home. I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. End of instruction. God speaks about the blessings, but that's the only instruction he gets. What a step of faith. In Hebrews, we're told that Abraham went out not knowing whither he went. You know, some of us this week as we've been praying, it's been a real step of faith, isn't it, at times? Sometimes you think, can I, can I do this? Can I even pray this prayer? Can I? Well, the Lord calls us to take these steps of faith. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. And Abraham is a great example of that to us. You know, what his friends must have looked on and thought, what, what are you doing, Abraham? Where are you going? I don't know. But you, you're packing all your family up. Yeah? Where are you going? Well, God's called me to go. Well, which God? No, no, the God. What do you mean, the God? Because again, in his, his culture, in order of the Chaldees, they, they worship a multitude of different gods. Even that early after the flood. And we were looking a little bit about that last week, how they started to worship all sorts of things, including the planets and so on. So Abraham now says, no, no, the one true God has called me to go. And Abraham's dad says, okay, well, I better come with you. So packs up his stuff and they go as a family. Now, when we look at the call of Abraham, we see a couple of reasons specifically for the call. And first is to have a people to whom God could entrust his written revelation to mankind. That's one of the reasons that Israel are called and chosen. And Paul tells us that in the book of Romans. It was to Israel who were given the scripture. And their job was to faithfully pass it down as they have done. It was also to have a witness to the one true God in the earth, in the midst of the nations. I mentioned a moment ago, the other nations, it was full of idolatry and paganism already, even by the time of Abraham. But Israel were to stand out. Israel were to be gods. Effectively a light in the darkness of the Gentile nations. And the final thing was to provide a safe way for the Messiah to come into this world at the appointed time. We read about this very much in Revelation chapter 12. We find we have this woman in Revelation 12. Typically, the, some people refer to her as the mystical Eve, or again, it speaks of the seed of the woman. It's this woman. And this woman is clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. That's a picture of Israel from Joseph's dream. We'll see that later in our study of Genesis, if the Lord tarries. So that seed of the woman was clothed with Israel. Why? For protection. 
to ensure safe delivery of the Messiah. Revelation 12 makes it very clear if you look into the study of that chapter. But I want to talk about something else quickly before we get back into the text. Because scripture speaks of three vines. And it all stems around this time historically that we start to see these things. You see, vines we know produce fruit. But that could be either good fruit or it could be bad fruit. Israel are spoken of in scripture as being a vine that God called into being. Babylon, for want of a expression that encompasses a lot we're told in the book of revelation also are another vine a false vine and then jesus christ who is the true vine now it's interesting when we look at these three vines and we do a study through scripture because israel were to be a witness to the nations testifying to the god of abraham isaac and jacob that's what they were to do And through this vine, the nations were to come to know and fear the one true God. That was Israel's purpose. But Israel, through disobedience, became, according to Jeremiah 2.21, a degenerate plant, and a byword, and a proverb, and so on. They didn't become this true vine, or this vine that was supposed to, that was to lead people to God. And rather than being a witness, they actually bring God's name into disrepute. And the Jewish religious leaders still thought, of course, that they were the only way to God. And you see that even in, in Jesus' day, they thought it was through Israel, through the law, through their ceremonies and so on. But there's also this false vine of deception spoken of in Revelation 14, 19, as I mentioned. It's the Babylonian vine, for again, one of a better expression. And it's the epitome of all false religion in the earth. It's ultimately going to unite all religion under its banner. It promises a way to spiritual security that's not offensive, that's politically correct, and all these kind of things we hear of today. But it will ultimately lead to destruction. As we start to see all religions starting to come back together as one. I mean, it started off at Babylon, as we were looking last week, as one, and it spread out around the world. And ultimately, it's going to make a way for Satan to come establish his own throne as it were that he himself would be worshipped interestingly again as we looked it started at babel or babylon and according to the prophecy we find in zechariah seemingly is going to conclude there as well god is going to bring judgment and revelation 17 and 18 speak very much about that so these two things that were supposedly offering a way to god israel failed this false vine fails to bring a way to god but then we have the true, true vine, the other vine. And that's what we read of in John 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. And it's saying that's not just a flippant comment. Jesus, I believe, tying all these things together. In contrast to the two vines we've just looked at, neither of which can lead anyone to the father, Jesus says, I am the genuine vine. Because Jesus can lead people to the father. So we see, even in this, I just know that no, that, you know, vine produces that which is to be presented to the king, and of course, Jesus will bring a multitude of people from all nations, and we'll be presented to God. But so Israel, despite the promises that we're seeing here, despite all that God had intended, didn't get it all right. So we're going to be talking a lot about Israel over the coming weeks, and we should be praying for Israel. Israel are vitally important in God's plan. But that doesn't mean we approve of everything Israel have ever said or done or will do. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Abraham himself as we start to get back on track. 74 times Abraham is mentioned in the New Testament. He's venerated by all three monotheistic religions, by, of course, Judaism, of course, by Christianity, but even Islam in their distorted version of history. We have these distinctive titles that are given to Abraham, father of the faithful and friend of God. Now, those titles themselves are quite interesting because there's evidence of design all through scriptures we know. But even in these titles, that title, Friend of God, is given to Abraham, it's given to the disciples. And it always seems to have this overtone of prophetic privilege. God reveals the things he's going to do to his friends. A couple of occasions we can cite, but we do a study, you see it's always the case when this title is used. Then we've also got the title, Beloved. Now, that's interesting as well, because that title is used of Daniel, 
It's used of John. And specifically, in a sense, we could apply that to believers too. Because that has this idea of apocalyptic privilege. That God has revealed things that will happen at the end of time too. And God uses these certain titles. So again, every detail in the Bible is there by design. These expressions that sadly a lot of translations don't, they, they miss the importance of these things and they kind of break these models. But every detail is there because God intended it to be so. We see with Abraham, God established this everlasting covenant. And it's really a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. You know, we can see Abraham's personal life, and by no means did Abraham get everything right. Abraham was very much like we are. He made a lot of mistakes. We'll see in a short while some of those things. But we're going to see that battle between the flesh and the spirit very much seen in the battle between Ishmael and Isaac, and Paul will expand on that in the book of Galatians. Sarah and Hagar, again, that same kind of struggle going on. We're going to get introduced shortly to this character, Melchizedek. A very interesting character. We probably won't get out into that this week. But we start to see all these things coming through. And then we get to that wonderful conclusion, the Akedar, as the, the Jews call it, in Genesis 22, when Abraham is called to offer up his son. Now, looking at this, just to try and help you draw the family tree, Terah, Abraham's father... Nahor and Haran, two brothers. And then Sarai is his half-sister. Now, Sarai, of course, and Abraham get married. Their offspring, well, of course, we have Ishmael, which is actually through Hagar, the servant girl, and then Isaac, who is Abraham and Sarai's uh, child by faith. Nahor's descendants, you see there, Bethel, Uz, Buzz. What great names. I mean, just when you're naming kids. I mean, this is maybe why God has not given us boys because uh, I probably would have tried to convince Joe we should have done this. Uh, but Kemuel, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, and uh, Jadlaf. That's great names. Um, um, uh, Haran's children, uh, Milcar, Iskar, and Lot. Now, of course, we're familiar with Lot because Haran dies, and so Abraham effectively adopts Lot and looks after him, and, and Lot will travel from Ur of the Chaldees with Abraham. Well, we then find that Bethel the son of Nahor, his children are Rebekah and Laban, who, again, we're going to come across because Rebekah ends up marrying Isaac. And then they have two children, Esau and Jacob. Well, you remember that Jacob flees from the the family home and ends up going and staying with Uncle Laban. And Laban himself then has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel, ends up marrying both, and ends up with four wives. We'll look at that as we go through. And obviously from them come the 12 tribes. Again, he's all in the notes, so you'd have to scribble that down. It'll be on the website later if you want to, to have a review. So let's then jump in and just look at some of the highlights as we go through this. So, now the Lord had said. It's a really important point because it's easy to read over that and miss that. The Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country, and so on as we've seen. Now, we're indebted to Stephen in the New Testament when Stephen is giving this Bible study effectively to the Sanhedrin, this most august Jewish body. You know, it would be like a, a nobody going and giving a lecture at Oxford University to the professors there. Uh, this is what Stephen's doing. And he says, men and brethren, our fathers... And our fathers hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Notice that God appeared to Abraham before he dwelt in Haran. And it was there that God said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come unto the land which I shall show thee. And then we read, Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. So rather than in strict obedience, Abraham getting up and going to the place that God was leading him to, he gets up and they move upriver, the Euphrates River, to a place called Haran. And that's where they live. And Abraham stays there. All the time his dad is still alive. It's only when his dad dies that Abraham seems to get tuned back in with God again. And so actually God told me to go to this land of Canaan. And then he begins his journey down to Canaan. 
And it's just an interesting aside here because in the New Testament, Jesus says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. See, there's a cost to discipleship. There has to be that letting go. You know, it's, it's the same idea as we see within marriage. There's the idea of leaving and cleaving. You leave your mother and father and you're joined to your wife. Well, Jesus says the same thing effectively. You have to let go. Jesus wants us to be joined to him. There's a beautiful picture in terms of discipleship with the, the way the Jews do it. They had for, for the five to 12 year olds, they're taught to learn by reading and writing the Torah. That's from age five to 12. It's referred to as Bet Sefer. And then you get to the Bet Midrash, which is from the age 30 to 15. And the students that have been identified as being gifted then get to go on and learn the rest of, as we would have it, the Old Testament, the Tanakh. For the, for the Jews. But then for most of the Jews, that's it, schooling's over, they'll go out and they'll learn a trade from there. But the very best of the best, from age 15 on, will be chosen by a rabbi to become a, a Talmudin or a disciple. And it's a real privilege to be in that position, to be called and chosen by a rabbi. And only the very best would have that opportunity. And if you were given that opportunity, you wouldn't hesitate to leave behind everything else you had and to go and follow your rabbi. Well, that, of course, speaks of us, that we have been called to leave everything else in this world. We were singing earlier on, I let go of all I have just to follow you. And then that song again, I love the words, when I finally see your face, I will say, you were worth it all. Not it was worth it, but you, Jesus, will be worth it all. Whatever else we've lost, we've found in him. In John 15, we read, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord does. But I have called you friends. Remember I said this earlier, that title of friends, given to those to whom the Lord reveals. For all things I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. And Jesus says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. I just pause there for a second. Doesn't that make you feel so overwhelmingly blessed and privileged? that our rabbi has come and chosen us to follow him. And notice what he says. And he's ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. Again, with the week that we've just had, what a great verse to have in mind here. That you've been chosen. And you've been appointed to bear fruit. That's what God wants of us. And God said, go ahead and ask. Ask for our unsaved loved ones. Ask for our friends, for our colleagues. And whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, in the name of our rabbi, in the name of the one that has chosen us and appointed us, he may give it you. God says to Abraham, Again, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, you may not see it there, but there's actually seven specific things that are highlighted. Let me put it in a simpler way to see it. These are unconditional promises that God gives. Firstly, number one, I will make of thee a great nation. I mean, this is a great verse even just to witness to the world with, because God has done that. From this one individual, God has made a great nation that has survived through incredible persecution and turmoil and so on. But they are still an identifiable ethnic group of people today. God says that I will bless thee. Well, what a, a true statement of the Jews. How many people have a hatred because of the blessings that God has given to the Jews? God says, I will make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. All these things, we could look at it from a prophetic aspect and see that God has done all of these things. And I will bless them that bless thee. Well, that's something we've seen. And we pray for Donald Trump and the American administration as they stand with Israel. We pray that our own government will have the wisdom to stand with Israel. The only democracy in the Middle East. But we're also told that God will curse him that curseth thee. And again, that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And we know that to be true because we are here this morning being recipients of that blessing 
because of one of Abraham's descendants, a Jew by the name of Jesus Christ, who was also God. See, God's contract is still intact. It was an unconditional covenant. We'll look at details over the coming weeks of this. But as a result of this, the nations are to be judged on how they have treated Israel. A passage that some people misunderstand in Matthew 25, it speaks of the sheep and the goats. It's speaking of the nations of this world at the time of the second coming that Jesus will judge depending on how they have treated his brethren. You know, and this contract also foresees the blessing of the family of the entire earth. And again, before the throne of God, we see in Revelation 5, 9, peoples of all nations and kindreds and tongues. We see the fulfillment of that blessing. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. And Abraham was 17 and 5 years old when he departed out of Haran. Now, we're told he was 75 when he leaves Haran. So he's left there of the Chaldees, he's gone to Haran. He's 75 when he leaves is what we're told here. Now, the critics love to jump on this and tell us there's a contradiction. So just in case you hear this, let me just tell you that it's not a contradiction at all. Critics love to work either by normally deceit or by ignorance. Uh, They're two chosen methods. Verse 26 of the previous chapter, Genesis 11, we're told there, Terah lived 70 years and begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So... People start to look at this and say, well, there's a mathematical problem. Because we're then told in verse 32, the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Okay? So the problem we've got, if Terah had Abraham when he was 70 and dies when he's 205, Abraham would have been 135 when he left for Haran. And we don't know how long he stayed in Haran before going off to Canaan. As I say, ah, let's see, there's a, there's a mistake in the Bible. No, not at all. See, we're told that at aged 70, Terah begat. I have to bear in mind that we're reading a translation, a good translation, indeed, that we're using, but it's still a translation. So sometimes these little details we might not see instantly. Whenever you find something that may appear to be a contradiction, just dig a d- d- bit deeper, because there will be an answer there. And we're told that Terah had three children, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. You see, but unless they were triplets, they couldn't have all been born in the same year. I think you'll agree that. Now, Terah were also told dies at age 205. No problem with any of these numbers. We're also then told at at that time Abraham was 75. These are the facts we're given in Scripture. So Terah must have had Abraham when he was 130, not 70. So how do we understand that verse? Well, we can safely deduce that Haran was the eldest. He dies before the others. Abraham the youngest in this family. And we've seen already that God often takes the youngest or the least and uses them. God takes the weak things of this world and so on. And as is consistent with scripture, we've already mentioned this in our study of Genesis, Abraham is placed first in the list in Genesis 11.26 because he's the one that we're going to focus on. So really the way to understand this is when Terah was 70, he began to begat, if that makes sense. That's when he started having his children who were, in reverse order, Abraham, who we're most interested in, Nahor, and Haran. The verse is not giving us the age of terror when each of the children were born, just the age at which he started to begin his family. No problems at all. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, as we've seen. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the substance that they, uh, that they gathered and the souls that they'd gotten in Haran. And they went forth into the land of Canaan. Into the land of Canaan they came. So Abraham makes this journey now down to the area that we know today as Israel. And Abraham passed through the land unto a place of Shechem, as we know it. Shechem, how it's spelled here, but Shechem, the same place that Jacob would later come and reside for a while with his children. Uh, unto the plain of Moray. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he, Abraham, built builded he an altar unto the Lord whom appeared unto him. Notice this. At this point, Abraham builds an altar there. Next verse. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and 
Ai, same place as Jericho, after Jericho that Joshua conquered. Ai is how we have it. Hai is how it's written here. On the east. And there he builded an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. See, again, Abraham is building an altar. Now, this is a really important point, and we're going to kind of wrap up soon, which kind of means I'm halfway through. No. Um, these altars, really interesting, because it's the first of three altars that Abraham builds of his own volition. There's going to be a fourth that he'll build at God's command. The first is at Shechem, we've just seen that. The second we've just seen also is at Bethel and I. The first one speaks of the world and the flesh. Shechem means literally a place of burdens. The second one is between Bethel, which means the house of God. Bet meaning house. El, same as Elohim, the name of God. The house of God and I. Now, looking last night in the concordances and commentaries, I just has this connotation and meaning of ruins. So he pitches his tent, he builds this altar between the house of God and the ruins. He starts off in a place of burden and then kind of moves halfway between. And then the third we find is at Hebron. Hebron speaks of being associated with God. It has the idea of fellowship. The idea that he's now closer to God than he is to the world. And then we get to the fourth altar, which is at Moriah. And that's the one that God instructs Abraham to go, and upon which offer up Isaac, his son. It's a place ultimately of sacrifice, of ultimate sacrifice. Now, very crudely, just to try and get across what I'm trying to say here, imagine that at Shechem... It's kind of 75% of Abraham. God's involved in Abraham's life, but Abraham's really in control, making the decisions. He's kind of delayed on getting to Canaan, but now he's there, and he gets this place, and he wants to be obedient, so he builds this altar to the Lord, but he's still in this place of burdens. The world is still a, a big influence in Abraham's life. But then we get to that place of moving away from the world and towards God, that halfway place. It's kind of like 50% Abraham, and now kind of 50% God leading and directing Abraham. We then get to Hebron. And Hebron is that space, a place of fellowship. Now it's more of God and less of Abraham. But finally we come to Moriah and it's all God and no Abraham. You know, and in this I see a pattern for each of our lives. That we become Christians. And to start with, we're kind of building our altars at Shechem. We know we should serve God and worship him and so on and but there's still a lot of the things of the world in our lives and that affect the decisions we make, the choices we make, the things that we watch, the things we listen to, the places we go, the company we keep. As we grow in grace, we learn to let go of those things. Uh, you know, again, this week, for those that have been fasting in whichever way, isn't it interesting, and I'm sure you've had this thought as well, because Joy and I have been talking about some of these things. We, we've kind of thought, well, you know, well, we'll give up this or we'll stop doing that for a week. And then you think, why do I do it in the first place? You know, if we are that concerned about eternity and the lives of our loved ones, why is it we allow a lot of things into our life that, as Paul says, may not be wrong, but they're not helpful? You see, it's interesting as we grow... We look back down the road and we see things that once we thought were okay and now we don't want anything to do with. It's not that it's wrong, it's we just don't do it. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And we haven't got long left. We've got a world out there. Another 22 souls this week on Monday in Manchester left this world, this earth for now, and entered into eternity. And praise God that he's put on our hearts the desire to pray for the lost. And I pray, truly pray, that that will continue. Because there's a lot of work to be done. In our own lives, we then come to that place of wanting more of God. And we let go of the things of the world. I, I'm not saying I never listen to the radio anymore. There are times we listen to the radio. But very seldom now do I choose to listen to any secular music my iTunes library I've got a whole load of albums of bands and artists I've listened to over the years and most of them I would say not bad and you know but they're not helpful I choose to listen to worship music at home we have K-Wave on most of the time which is a Christian radio station because it's just worship 
That, that's what I want. And where God wants us to get to, for each of us, is Moriah. You know, from what we know, Isaac was around the age of 33. That means he willingly laid down his life. And that's what the Lord would have for each of us as well. And probably none of us are there yet. But that's where we're heading. It's the place that God is calling us to. You see, those first three altars, Abraham built them of his own volition. It was his choice. The last one is the one that God is calling us to more than anything else. To let go of all that we have to follow our rabbi. See, each altar marks a milestone in Abraham's walk with God. Each altar sees Abraham moving more from his self-sufficiency to dependence on God. The altar was a place of sacrifice, and I'm pretty sure that blood would have been shed on each of those altars. We know for a fact it was on the last one. God said of that last one that he would provide himself a lamb. And of course, ultimately, Jesus was that lamb that was shed in our place. It was all of God, not of us. But I'm sure even on those other altars, Abraham was offering sacrifices that had been passed all the way down from Abel to Seth to Noah. After the flood, we know they offered sacrifices and so on. I'm sure Abraham was doing the same thing, moving more and more away from the world and realizing that relationship is based upon that sacrificial love. And the greatest discovery is that God has done it all. We've just got to come. God wants to take us as we are. And Abraham journeyed going on still towards the south and there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was grievous in the land. A famine is an indication that something is not right. There's loads of occasions in scripture we could do a long big side study in this. We're not going to do it this morning. If you want to do it, it's, it's interesting the things you can see from it. But you see, it's rather than seeking men, we should be seeking God. And this really ties in with that last thing we were saying as well about how we're living, where, where, which altar we've got to in our life in that sense. Now Abraham makes the decision to go down into Egypt. And, you know, look, he's in a situation, he's in a land, the family is grievous. Come on, he's got a family, what else is he going to do? Well, what else he should have done is trust God. You see, you may say, well, it was a very natural thing and even God led them. No, 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 I don't believe so. Because look at the fruit that comes from this. What happens as a result of that journeying down to Egypt is, well, let's read on and you'll see. It came to pass that when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai's wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Ladies like to hear that when their husbands say, You look good, darling. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will save thee alive. Say, I pray, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with thee for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. So they can cock this plan. And they come this half-truth, which means it's still a lie. And it should come to pass that when, Ab- it came to pass that when Abraham was come into Egypt, that the Egyptians beheld of the woman, that she was very fair. Now she's getting on a bit at this point. But obviously she's still a very pretty lady. And the princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commanded her, uh, commended her before Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house to effectively become part of his harem. While she was part of that harem, she met a young woman by the name of Hagar. They get on so well that she ends up, Hagar ends up coming with Abraham and Sarah, they'll become back into the land of Canaan. They've never gone down to Egypt in the first place. They'd have never met. And the problem then that we have seen down through the ages with the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac would never have happened. See, God may take us to places of famine in our lives where we don't think we've got a choice. Oh, we've got a choice, and it's to trust God. It's the hardest thing in the world. Some of you may have experienced this week, for those that did fast from food, and if you've ever done this in the past, you'll know this, that there will come a point, or not often a number of points, particularly if you fast for any more than one day, where your body gets weak. And you start to think, I can't do this, I can't carry on. I need to eat something. Every time in those situations, if you go to God, if you go to his word, if you worship him, almost instantly 
God strengthens you. And there are people here this morning that can testify to that from this last week. But it's a place where naturally the mind says, we've got to do this, it's the obvious thing. But the Spirit says, no, trust God. There are countless examples in Scripture where God puts people in impossible situations to see how they respond, to see if they really will trust Him. And it may be that God will place some of those before us in this week ahead for individuals as a fellowship or over the coming months if the Lord tarries. What are we going to do? We, we can go with the flesh, but you know what? It's going to cause problems. You see, there's something that's really quite sad in our Christian life, and that is settling for something that is not God's best for us. It might be good, but it's not God's best. Well, we're told that Pharaoh entreated Abraham well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and asses and men servants and maidservants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why did thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why sayest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife, and now therefore behold thy wife. <laughs> Take her, go, get away from here. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Abraham accomplished nothing in all of this, really, apart from lying and deceiving a bit and potentially putting his wife in a difficult, compromising situation and ultimately causing problems for generations to come. Well, just to close, just one interesting thing here. Well, there's a very interesting model in this because there's a famine in the land here, but we find the same in the time of Joseph. This descent into Egypt to dwell there. The attempt also to kill the males, but save the females. Interesting. Because we find the same when we carry on that Joseph and the family move down there. Eventually we get to the time of Moses and we see exactly this. The plagues on Egypt as a result because of God's displeasure on Egypt. The spoiling of Egypt. And then the deliverance as God sets them free. And then the ascent back up into the Negev, going up into the area of southern Israel. It's just an interesting parallel, almost looking in advance of what was to come. No, I'm not halfway, so we're going to stop. We'll stop there. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Lord, there is so much food here for us to nourish on this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal to each of us right now where we are in our walk with you. Lord, these altars that Abraham was building, they, they serve as milestones in our walk. Father, is it still a lot of us taking control, making the decisions, and just coming to you at times? Or Lord, have we just abandoned all to you? To let go of this world, the things of this world, not to love the world or the things of the world. Lord, wherever we are, draw us close to you by your grace, we pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We continue to pray for those unsaved loved ones, that your grace would reach them and that, Lord, their eyes would be opened, their ears unblocked, and that they would hear and that they would see, that they would be healed, they would look upon you and they would be saved. Lord, we praise you. You're a mighty God. And we thank you for all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.